Welcome to Slate's Spoiler Specials. I'm Karen Hahn, staff writer at Slate, and I'm joined by Sam Adams, senior editor at Slate. Welcome, Sam. Thank you, Karen. Today, we are spoiling The Suicide Squad, the soft reboot slash standalone sequel to the 2016 film Suicide Squad, which is differentiated by the fact that it does not have the in the title. Sam, I don't think we've really talked about this. Did you watch the 2016 Suicide Squad? I I did, unfortunately. It's a very, very bad movie, but yeah, I saw it's it. It's not really memorable. <laughs> no, it's really not. But it, it is really bad and unmemorable and was like kind of a mess. You can tell that they kind of like reshot the whole second act after they kind of got rid of the director and stuff. And yet it made like a gazillion dollars. And so that necessitated making another one or the same one again, or however it is you want to characterize this thing. Were you excited for this one? Where were your expectations for this? I mean, I was excited. And I think the reasons for that are basically two words, which are James Gunn, who is the writer director of this movie, there are two things to know about James Gunn going into this. I guess three, if you don't know that he is also the writer-director of the Guardians of the Galaxy movies for Marvel. I think that if you're interested enough in The Suicide Squad to listen to this podcast, you probably know that part. But I mean, the two things are, one, that the James Gunn, before he was a Marvel director, kind of came up through the ranks at a sort of independent B-movie studio called Troma, which is best known for the Toxic Avenger movies. And this is Basically, as if someone gave him $2 million to make one of their sort of grotty, self-consciously lowbrow uh, genre movies. And the other thing is that this is the movie that James Gunn made uh, after being fired by Marvel for uh, some sort of off-color, edgelordy tweets of his from like 10 years earlier that resurfaced in 2018. He was eventually rehired by Marvel to make the third Guardians of the Galaxy movie, but there was a point there where he was kind of in free fall, cut loose from one uh, comic book studio and approached by DC to make this one. And I think that's important because first there is a real sort of like fuck you quality to this movie, but I think there's also a real like sense of gratitude that he gets to spend like hundreds of millions of dollars making this crazy stuff. And he's going to give, you know, the people who stood by him like, you know, the craziest shit that he can possibly do if this is the last movie he ever gets to make. That's fair. Although I have I have one argument to make, which is a lot of people have described this as like the big the big budget trauma movie. But I'm almost tempted to say, like, if this was I understand it on a level of this is more zany than most other superhero movies. But at the same time, if I was like, if someone was like, you're going to go see a trauma movie, I'd be like, this is not nearly like gross or like gross out enough or like weird out there enough. Right. I, no, I think that's fair. I mean, I, I would say that if someone describes this as a $200 million trauma movie, that you kind of have to give equal weight to the $200 million part of it <laughs> and all the limitations and concessions that that comes with. So he is definitely not free to do whatever he wants in this movie, but it is 
you know, it's very, very gory for, for what it is, you know, not for class of Newcomb High or whatever, but for a major studio tentpole. Yes, that is true. And the goriness obviously, or of course, is apt for the entire premise of the Suicide Squad. So in case you missed the first one, the overall idea is that these supervillains who get put in jail are taken out as a team by the government to complete these sort of black ops missions. The idea being it's fine if nobody knows that they're out there and doing this. And if they decide to go rogue or try to go free, they all have these little bombs implanted in their heads that'll go off from mission control to keep them in control. And so the beginning of this movie is basically just proving that point where we see this team of superheroes that includes like Pete Davidson, Nathan Fillion going up onto the beach and immediately just all of them, almost all of them getting completely destroyed. (laughs) Yeah, and in really, really like stupid ways. Like these are, you know, presented of these kind of like hardened convicts. They're literally all just out of prison. Mm -hmm. They all have superpowers, but they're also just kind of idiots. Like there's one character named Mongal who is, they surmise like might be a God or something like that. I don't. I do not know her comic book backstory, but she looks like she has sort of, you know, scaly like red lizard skin and stuff, and seems pretty indestructible. And you know, decides to wade into the fray. They're invading this sort of fictional uh, South American island nation called Cordo Maltese, meeting up with their army. And she decides that she's going to take down the helicopter that is attacking them by just kind of jumping off this rock art outcropping and holding onto it and like throwing it to the <laughs> ground, which is sort of typical superhero movie stuff. But she realizes immediately when she does it that she's going to crash along with the helicopter and just starts screaming in a very non-superhero movie-ish way. It's <laughs> And then it crashes and she burns to death. Um, And that's the end of Mongal. Yeah, I mean, it it is sort of funny that way where all these people, again, as you say, that we're like, ooh, these guys seem pretty cool, all die so quickly, especially because some of them are being played by such famous people, particularly Pete Davidson, and also even like Flula Borg, who's a pretty well-known comedian. And then there's the death of Michael Rooker's character, known as Savant, who opens the film. You see him looking really like wizened and tough in Bell Rev prison. And then as he watches all his friends getting killed, well, I guess they're not his friends, but his colleagues his co-workers getting killed, he starts freaking out and just runs away and then just ends up just having the bomb in his head detonated because he's a coward. (laughs) I mean, the sort of the the moment when you realize that things are going to turn is one of the members of the sort of initial proto-suicide squad is a character called Weasel, Mm -hmm. um, who is just a giant (laughs) human-sized weasel who apparently is in prison for murdering 27 children. Played by James Gunn's brother, Sean Gunn. Who also does sort of all the like motion capture duties on his movies. He also sort of plays like Rocket Raccoon on set for the Guardians Mm -hmm. movies. Um, And it's a very brief appearance in this movie as a DC villain who I believe is called Calendar Man. Just (laughs) But yeah, so Weasel is just this you know, character they spend all this time setting up seems totally gross. Then they're and they're doing like a water landing approach to this island, and he jumps out of the helicopter into the water and immediately drowns because no one has thought to ask <laughs> if a we- this weasel can swim. <laughs> so that's that's what you're dealing with here, folks. It's so good. And also that character is so upsetting. It has the thing where like when a dog is too small and its eyes are too far out of its head and looking in different directions, it has that. It can't really speak English. It's just making these really pathetic whining noises to the point that I felt I felt bad for him when he died. Spoiler alert, he's not dead, but still a pretty sad scene nevertheless. But concurrently, we see that there's actually a second Suicide Squad coming up on a different beach. The first squad has basically been sent there 
there as cannon fodder to distract the Corte Maltese soldiers, while the second squad, which includes Peacemaker, one of the big new characters, and Bloodsport, they have also arrived in Corte Maltese to execute pretty much the same mission. Yes, which is very sort of nebulous at first. And this is sort yeah. of present in, in the previous movie a little bit, but James Gunn like really kind of doubles down on the idea of Amanda Waller, who's like this sort of total, you know, government badass who like directs them, who blows up their heads if they go off mission, et cetera. It's, she's just like basically kind of an American fascist. Like she's just like, do what the government mm-hmm. tells you to do or we will blow your head up. And like, that's it. We're not going to tell you any more than you need to know. <laughs> We're certainly not going to tell you about yeah. our whole complicated history with this, with this Central American nation, um, which, mm-hmm. as the history of the U.S. in um, Latin America tends to be, is pretty complicated and ugly. Any foreign country. Yes, yeah. So, but it's just <laughs> like, basically, they're going to go there. They're supposed to, you know, blow up this building, which contains this thing called Project Starfish, which they don't even know what it is, except that it's bad. And they're supposed to destroy mm-hmm. it and not ask too many questions and basically just kill anybody they see along the way. Yeah. And of course, one of the first things that establishes the fact that Amanda Waller is not to be trifled with is number one, of course, she blows up Savant's head. But also, as Bloodsport, played by Idris Elba, is introduced, we see that the main reason he's going along with all these schemes is that she has threatened to put his daughter, his teenage daughter, in prison and basically make her life a living hell in order to make her father do what she wants. Yeah, and she's really, I mean, I I give the movie credit for this. Like, it definitely, you know, pulls some punches at the end and gets a little fuzzy. But, like, Amanda Waller in this movie is not, like, a badass. Like, she's actually bad. She's like, I'm going to take your daughter (laughs) and put her in prison, which she mentions, you know, in Belle Reve Prison in Louisiana, which she mentions offhandedly has, like, the highest Mm -hmm. mortality rate in the country. And it's like, if you don't do this, I'm going to put your daughter in jail where she will probably be killed. Yeah. (laughs) You know, she's like actually terrible, which is sort of enjoyable. That storyline, though, is also sort of funny because it's such a copy-paste job from Will Smith's character from the first movie, if anyone listening recalls that, where it's like we have a main badass character who is mostly doing this villain stuff in order to protect his daughter specifically. Will Smith, of course, not back for this movie, but the characters who are back include Rick Flagg, played by Joel Kinnaman, and Harley Quinn, played by Margot Robbie, and very briefly, Captain Boomerang. Is it Captain Boomerang or just boomerang. I, I believe he is technically a captain, but... Wow. How do you become a captain of a boomerang? Anyway, Captain Boomerang, played by Jai Courtney. Who dies in the first scene. R.I.P. <laughs> captain Boomerang. But everyone else is new, which is kind of a fun and refreshing thing to go through, especially because I feel like in these movies where the whole point is you're kind of cycling through a cast, the the appeal is like, who's the weirdest character we can get up here? Yeah, and it's, it seems like they really went for that in, in this case. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure how much, you know, what James Gunn has been saying in interviews, how he really wanted to take his cues from the comic book incarnation of Suicide Squad, which is really just about, like, reviving, like, the most, you know, kind of obscure, like, deservedly discarded characters. Mm-hmm. How much of that was intentional and how much of it was just him asking about, like, can I use these things and the, they have, you know, the DC universe is things plotted out for them 25 years in advance or whatever. But we do end up with, you know, characters that I think even very hardcore comics fans may not have heard of before, like Polka Dot Man, one of the great additions to this one. MVP. Yes, played by um, David Desmalchian. Yeah, and, and Ratcatcher 2, which is, you know, the daughter of Ratcatcher, but also make it, makes it seem like they just couldn't get the original Ratcatcher. <laughs> 
<laughs> he was already booked. It's sort of sad that they call her Ratcatcher 2, or even at least in the, like, promotional materials, because, like, she is the only one anymore. You don't really have to call her Ratcatcher 2, but that's besides the right, point. Right, don't you usually, like, inherit your superhero parents' mantle and not just become, like, right. the sequel to them? That seems unfair. Right. Batman is a bad example, but he's not, like, there's not, like, Batman 2. It's just, like... You just become Batman. Anyway, the other members of the news squad also include King Shark, who's arguably a little more famous because he also appears in the animated Harley Quinn series, but certainly hasn't been on screen as high impact as this before. Yeah, he was. I believe he was on the, the TV version of The Flash as well for a couple episodes as okay. a more uh, straightforward villain. <laughs> but yeah, here he is. He's very cute in this. He is, I mean, he's very, I mean, very much in the vein of Groot from the Guardians movies. Oh, yeah. Um, just an endearing, monosyllabic, much more uh, carnivorous than, than Groot. Mm-hmm. He is, we were told right from the beginning of the movie, acquired a taste for human meat, which he indulges many times in the course of the yeah. film. But it's another, it's a very similar strategy going right down to casting like a sort of iconic movie tough guy to deliver his monosyllabic lines, in this case, Sylvester Stallone. He's very good. Yes. I wish they had released more like behind the scenes footage of him in the booth because it does sound like he's he is like doing a voice. It's not just Sylvester Stallone says one word. No, but yeah, he, he has lines like book read. Um, I mean, it's very sweet. He wants to be smart and appreciated by his peers, which I think is relatable for all of us. Yes, and he also wants to eat them, but he is talked out of that eventually. Yeah, in a very sweet way. So, as we mentioned, the first Suicide Squad gets their asses handed to them, but Rick Flagg, who is among the first squad, who notably is not a villain, but is, like, sort of the cop in charge of them on the ground, he gets what they believe is kidnapped, and so the second Suicide Squad goes off to save him. They completely decimate what they believe to be a camp of kidnappers, before discovering that Rick Flagg is actually fine and everyone they've killed is a good rebel trying to overthrow the dictatorship in Corte Maltese. Right. I guess we should mention it's hard to you know, pay too much attention to the plot here, but what sort of sets it in motion here is that there's a military coup in this mm-hmm. nation. That's what kind of destabilizes things and necessitates this act of American intervention. So yeah, so this is the group of rebels who are trying to overthrow the military coup um, led by Elise Braga, but because Amanda Waller has just told them to go in and sort of terminate with extreme prejudice anyone who's between them and Rick Flagg, like they just wipe out the whole camp. And it's actually like, I mean, it's a a pretty dark sequence, especially once you kind of understand the context of it. But it's very funny because it's sort of executed as this sort of murderous pissing contest between it's the Legolas slash Gimli two towers. <laughs> yes. Bit. Except just like with murdering innocent people. Yes, that's correct. Yes. But it, yeah, so it's just John Cena and Idris Elba, like kind of, you know, shooting each other, like shitty looks kind of miming, like, you know, jerking off on each other and then like it's- killing people to show <laughs> off what's going on. Yeah, and they're arguing the whole time, which makes it funnier in part that the rebels don't notice them this entire time. And they're talking about like what's cooler and what's not. And Idris is like, I would I'd shoot a bullet straight at you. And John Cena is like, well, I'd shoot a smaller bullet at you and it'd go through the middle of your bullet and kill you. And he'd be like, what's the point of that bullet? He's like, because it's fucking cool. And it's just like, shit, you're right. It is fucking cool. And I mentioned this because it will become important later on in the movie. Yes, exactly the sort of 
dueling sizes of bullets, in fact, becomes key to the resolution of the Bloodsport Peacemaker arc. Yeah, I have a huge question about that, but we'll we'll cross that bridge when we get there. I should I also briefly want to mention that John Cena's character Peacemaker actually actually is supposed to get his own spinoff show, I believe, on HBO, and he's quite good in this movie. I I like John Cena as an actor. I think he's always quite charming. I was going to ask what you thought of his performance here because he's yeah he's playing the character. He said that kind of James Gunn's instruction when to him was to play Peacemaker like a douchebag Captain America. Mm-hmm. He's so, he's like this sort of insufferable toddler who is also extremely good at killing people. <laughs> so it's, it's, uh, it's a, I mean, it's a very funny performance that's kind of made more so by the fact that the character does not have a sense of humor, like at all. Yeah, he's very good in comedic roles. Like I thought he was great in Blockers and even Bumblebee, where he's supposed to be a bit of an idiot. He's good. He doesn't have the range that Dave Bautista has, but he's very good at what he does do. So they come across the Rebels and they discover what sort of is going on outside of the information that Amanda Waller has given them. Harley Quinn, unfortunately, has also been kidnapped and taken to the villa, I guess, of one of the villains who, as it turns out wants to marry her in part because he is a fanboy and in part because it is frowned upon to be a bachelor in a leadership position is my understanding of it. Yeah, it's not clear to me like how much of that speech to her is supposed to be legit. But yes, he says like the people of Corte Maltese are very conservative. They won't like accept Mm -hmm. a new leader without a bride. So he only met with her in order to satisfy them that he was looking for one. But then he has actually fallen in love with her and wants him to marry her. So then they have like amazing sex. And then he starts talking about how excited he is to be in, in control of the country, how he's going to take control of Project Starfish and use it to exterminate his enemies. Mm-hmm. And Harley, who is, you know, can recognize a red flag in a man when she sees one, just abruptly kind of shoots him through the heart and then apologizes while he's bleeding to death, but is like, look, you know, I dated the Joker. I know where this is going. And yeah. <laughs> Good really, for the her, best thing honestly. I can do for both of us is murder you. So yeah. she does, yeah. Inadvertently, though, this means that the sort of military front of the coup is now in power, played by the great Joaquin Cosio. I'm not 100% on how to pronounce his name, but I like him in everything that he turns up in and feel like he has not had a sufficiently big role in any movie yet. Anyway, so now they have a whole new problem, but the team meets up because everyone outside of the kidnapping situation goes to rescue Harley but then end up finding her as she has already made her own escape. She is not a damsel in distress. Yeah, that's sort of like a classic example of how this movie likes to wrong foot you. There's this whole scene where they talk through this elaborate plan and, and you know mm-hmm. give you the whole set of like, oh, we're setting up our heist and we, there's our lookout on the third floor and they're just about to go into it. And then Harley just walks out and is like, hey, guys, what are you doing? Yeah. <laughs> And, it, and the lead up is pretty involved where they go through all the trouble of capturing the thinker who is the supervillain in charge of Project Starfish played by Peter Capaldi doing kind of a Mega Man thing or Mega Mind, not Mega Man. That would be a completely different movie, but I would watch that. So they've captured the thinker and are now like, we need to get Harley and we need to go blow up Project Starfish. And once they go get Harley, they break into Jotunheim, which is the name of the laboratory, and they discover that the thing inside is a giant starfish that is capable of mind-controlling people around it by sending out smaller starfishes that then, like, facehugger any victims, promptly killing them and turning them into vessels of the starfish. 
Right. So, yeah. So the two big reveals here are one that the villain is and this this does seem like something where James Gunn was just like, what is like the stupidest possible villain I could take out of the comics? What if it's like a giant alien like starfish named Starro the Conqueror? How would that be? Which uh, which the thinker explains in this movie is is meant to be derisive. Sadly, it's mean. It's mean. (laughs) Yes. But then also that, in fact, this is not sort of some evil plan that like this rogue uh, nation has been coming up. But in fact, this is an American-run experiment mm-hmm. that they've just been doing, sort of Gitmo style, somewhere you know in a country where they can't, where they have like plausible deniability. And in fact, it was like American astronauts who discovered this thing floating in space. They're the ones who have been having him experiment on it and feed this country's sort of you know dissidents and journalists mm-hmm. to his kind of live fodder to for for thirty years. And now scary, because the, really scary reveal. Yes, and now because the country is destabilized, they just want to like destroy this whole thing and clean up their mess before it falls into the wrong hands. Yeah. The reveal, again, is like really, really scary. It's kind of almost like Bioshocky, where they go into the thinker's lab and they see all these people who are who've been like cut up and amputated and really just destroyed, but still alive because they're still attached to the starfish on their faces. Really one of the more gruesome bits of the movie in a movie that's full of like heads getting sliced and then sliding off in the classic <laughs> um, horror movie kind of thing. I do love the giant starfish, although I, I, as I was watching the movie, I was sort of wondering how many cues this movie was taking from Legends of Tomorrow. Certainly not as well viewed, I think, overall as the Suicide Squad will be, but the show featured like a giant blue teddy bear named Bebo for a while. And if you remember that clip going viral on Twitter where it was just like Bebo like destroying a city and it's like, this is just, this is insane, but this is great, which is kind of the same vibe that watching a giant pink and blue starfish destroy a city has. Yeah, it does seem like, I mean, I'm I'm not sure that I've seen people involved with the movie talk about it, but it does feel Mm -hmm. like Legends of Tomorrow, which I think is not... Um, the sort of most has never been like the most watched of the the CW DC universe mm-hmm. shows the Arrowverse I guess we call it collectively but <laughs> seems to have become now like the fan favorite just because it's the one that like takes all the weird um, shit yeah. that doesn't fit anywhere else. You know, one of the things I like about the Suicide Squad, and there are things that I don't like. I I guess I should say we haven't really sort of discussed like overall views yet. There are some ways in which it doesn't work for me, and in fact, like. You know, as I was saying at the beginning, like spending this amount of money on something and then trying to give it the sort of, you know, grotty made in a garage feel that it does just kind of ruin the joke in some ways. But I I do really like one thing I miss, you know, as someone who grew up reading comics and have really missed in the movies is that sense of just being able to do like crazy throwaways for run one mm-hmm. issue and then put them, put them away. And it's sort of neat that this movie is coming around at the same time as the Marvel show, uh, the animated uh, Disney Plus show, What If, which is the first episode was a little conservative, but it gets more interesting further on is at least, you know, experimenting with like, <laughs> what if we did like a like a story that doesn't fit anything and actually maybe kind of yeah. ruins all the stuff, the stuff we planned and then just threw it away because we just thought we'd like, you know, it's like when in comics, when they would like the regular, you know, artist and writer would fall behind for an issue and they mm-hmm. would just have like another creative team come in and do something, you know, completely different for one episode just so they could catch up. This feels a little bit like that. Like it's just, you know, we're, the DC universe is kind of killing time where they figure out <laughs> what to do with like Batman and Superman, all this stuff that kind of crashed and burned after the failure of the Justice League. So it's just like, let's just get a bunch of characters that nobody cares about 
have them fight like a big starfish, kill most of them, and then just like put something in movie theaters while we figure out what like the real movie we're going to make next is. Yeah. And sort of to your point, like the one of the nice things about this being sort of the film equivalent of one of those throwaway issues is the fact that characters can die and it actually like you believe that they're dead where I wrote about this a little bit on slate.com. But one of the problems that I have with a lot of the big superhero blockbusters recently is that you're never going to convince me that the superhero is really in any danger. Like watching Superman die in the recent DC films. I was like, I don't like, I don't believe that he's dead. He's going to come back. And he does before the movie is even over. And like, I'm never going to believe I'm never going to watch a movie and think, Oh, is this one where Captain America dies? Unless it's one that's already like hyped up to be that in which case it doesn't feel surprising. It doesn't necessarily have the same kind of weight. Whereas this one, I was shocked that, so we, so we, we discover that this Project Starfish is an American invention and Peacemaker is on the mission to make sure that the evidence is destroyed and no one ever finds out. And Rick Flagg on the other side of the coin is horrified to discover this and decides that he must get this information out into the world so that people know what's happening. And in the ensuing fight, Rick Flagg dies, which was shocking to me because he is a main character in both Suicide Squad movies. He's kind of boring, but I would never have guessed that he'd be taken off the board permanently. And the same goes sort of for in the ensuing fight with a starfish, Polka Dot Man bites the dust after a very sweet kind of heroic moment. And he's got he's been built up enough and he's lasted long enough in the movie, you know, that you think he's going to make it out into the next one because we already saw a bunch of other people die at the beginning. Like there's no reason to think that any of the heroes are going to die, but they do and it really works for me. Yeah, I mean it, it's interesting. Um I was I was going to plug your piece in uh, just a minute. Karen, I think, I think, yeah, I think you wrote a great piece about how like, you know, so many of these comic book movies, even the ones that are sort of interesting for two thirds, you get, you know, basically, especially the, the ones that Zack Snyder is associated with in any way, including like the first Wonder Woman, you get this just sort of, you know, big, like glowy garbage in the sky fight where they're like saving the world. And it's like, well, the world's not going to be destroyed. Like, you know, it's going to be saved. You know, Superman's mm-hmm. not going to die. Yada, yada, yada. So there's actually no, the, the dramatic tension is like, well, how are they going to do this thing that I already know is going to happen? Which is not very interesting. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the extent to which this movie has to work against that, like when Rick Flagg gets killed and it's in this sort of knockdown drag out brawl with Peacemaker where he ends up stabbing him through the heart, which I, what I think is a broken piece of toilet. <laughs> the movie actually ha- does like a cut in inside Rick Flagg's chest yeah. where you can see this thing like stab him in the heart. And like, that's how far a superhero movie has to go. Or like <laughs> Polka Dot Man gets like squished flat by one of Starro's tentacles or pseudopods or whatever they are. Sorry to <laughs> marine bio majors out there. Uh, but like that, that's how far this movie has to go and, and is willing to go um, in order to confirm the characters are dead. When the thinker eventually, who's been experimenting on Starro for 30 years, finally gets, comes face to giant eye with the starfish. He's like literally ripped apart. I think two of his limbs mm-hmm. are torn off and then he is like Gross. thrown into a wall and like splats into like gibbets up against a window. Yeah. But like that's how far these movies have to go to convince you that someone's like actually really dead. So yeah. Because even, even, even Peacemaker, who seems dead, is then brought back to life in the post-credit <laughs> scene. Because He's he got to come back for his HBO show, dog. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> 
So, yeah, Rick Flag dies. It seems like Peacemaker's going to have his way, but then Ratcatcher arrives on the scene and takes the hard drive of information. Peacemaker chases her down and is about to kill her when Bloodsport drops through the ceiling. They both shoot at each other. Bloodsport's tiny bullet goes through Peacemaker's bigger bullet and hits Peacemaker in the neck, apparently killing him. Yes. Womp womp. It's a good scene. When did he have time to get tiny bullets? Where did he get them? Uh, yeah, that is. I mean, a lot of his his weaponry in this movie is is pretty. Uh, there's a lot of sort of hand waving around it. Like yeah. he just has these little pieces that he pulls off his belt that like magically transform themselves into like different parts of a gun. And I think, I mean, part of what's going on with with Bloodsport in this movie is that the character I think was initially written as. Deadshot, Will Smith's character mm-hmm. from the first movie, which is why, as you pointed out, he has like the same backstory, like doing it for his daughter and whatever. And it was really kind of just as they were approaching, I think even after Idris Elba was cast, they initially thought they were just going to put him in the same role. Mm-hmm. And then they eventually like, well, we need to leave the door open for Will. Um, so just make him another character who's like kind of the same thing. So I think yeah. a lot of the the weaponry and stuff like that was just you know, hold your hand out and we'll like have the CG guys like figure it out and post (laughs) seems to be what happened there. Yeah. And so once Peacemaker is out of the equation, everyone regroups and they go to go kill the giant starfish. Although we should mention that briefly King Shark, partially because he is a slightly slow guy, gets separated from the rest of the group and has a small interlude with just a floor. That's just a giant tank on in Jotunheim tower with these little floating, almost jellyfish-like things, which is quite cute and sweet, until the tank bursts and it turns out that they all have, like, piranha teeth on the bottom and almost kill him. Uh, you have no idea how many times I was afraid that King Shark was about to die. I would have cried. Uh, yeah, I know, I think, and I think uh, the movie is aware or sort of counting on people, like, forming that sort of, like, <laughs> like cutesy, like, anime yeah. eyes relationship with King Shark because it definitely does. I mean, he gets killed he has, like, the most. Eyes. It's so sweet. Yeah, he yeah. gets he gets like killed the most of any character. I mean, he literally drops like six stories out of this building. He gets eaten yeah. by these little, you know, venomous piranha fish. He gets, he gets shot, shot about a, a million lot. times. Yeah, uh, he gets thrown into a building by Starro, uh, <laughs> but like thrown into a building so hard that the building like collapses mm-hmm. around him. But he's he's King Shark. He's he's basically an ancient shark no, god, no and he's fine. Yes. Yeah. He's so sweet. Yes. Um, yeah, we should mention the reason that he doesn't eat his Suicide Squad members is earlier on Ratcatcher's like, "What would you eat your friends? He's like, I don't have any friends. She's like, we can be your friends. And that's why he doesn't eat them. It's very cute. <laughs> yes. It's the power of <laughs> it's the power of friendship. I mean, that's sort of and this is true of, of the Guardians movies, too. But that's yeah. something that, that James Gunn tries a lot and like mostly gets away with sometimes it's but he, he really balances this this sort of you know in your face still sort of like sort of edge lordy gore a lot of these you know very close to fourth wall breaking jokes one of my favorites in the movie that i only caught on the second time through is mm-hmm. when they're they're sort of planning the big approach to jotunheim and it's this classic scene where they're sort of standing on the roof of a building and you know rick flag's like pacing around explaining okay like this team's gonna go here this team's gonna go around there and and Harley, who's, uh, you know, a psychopath, um, just wants to be involved. So she just starts stalking it around. And at one point he goes, okay, so we're going to do this. And you guys go there. And she just yells out, I am walking back and forth. Um, (laughs) And it's just like. She just wants to be involved. Yes. Yes. So it's like a joke about the character, but it's also a joke about these like, you know, movie scenes where it's just like, Mm -hmm. oh, we need to give it some visual energy. So what if the characters just like walk around a lot for no reason? (laughs) 
So, but the movie balances that kind of stuff with this really, you know, pretty naked, you know, sentimentality that would yeah. be really cloying in any other context. But because it's in a movie in which you have a giant shark like ripping a man in half with his bare hands, yeah, it sort of comes out in the wash. Yeah. Let's take a quick break. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M dot com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Hey listeners, before we get back to the show, we wanted to remind you about the benefits of joining Slate Plus. With Slate Plus, you'll get bonus episodes for shows like Political Gabfest and Mom and Dad Are Fighting, and you'll get unlimited reading on the Slate website without ever hitting a paywall again. So if you want to support us and support Slate, sign up for Slate Plus. It's only $1 for the first month. Just go to slate.com slash spoiler plus. And we're back. The sentimentality, of course, wins the day. So as they're fighting the giant starfish, Polka Dot Man is unfortunately squashed, but Ratcatcher carries the day because she summons all of her rats to come swarm the starfish as well as sort of take care of all the citizens and soldiers of Corda Maltese who've been taken over by the starfish. Harley Quinn is almost given the triumphant moment because she jumps with the javelin that she was given at the beginning of the movie into Starro's eye, but the rats are pretty much doing all, all the work. And there's really, it's, I, I love the way that Harley Quinn is shot in this movie because there, there's like always like beauty shots, but it's always while something gross is happening like around her. Like in this final instant, she's floating in the water. It's so ethereal, but then all these rats are swimming in the water around her and chewing on the like blood veins in the eye. It's gross, but it's and, great. And then after, after Starro dies, like she's like climbing out of its corpse and she's yeah. like just all covered in like sort of, you know, gelatin and goo and like climbing out of this dead alien being with this big, like crazy smile on her face. Yeah. I mean, they, they, you know, the first movie took, uh, you know, a lot of kind of deserved flack for a kind of leering at Margot Robbie and that was, you know, they course corrected for in, in Birds of Prey. 
And it's nice to see that like this movie does not kind of fall back on the first Suicide Squad. Mm-hmm, it, you mm-hmm. know, it's like Harley. It's not like sexy getting out of the pool or whatever. It's just like you ha- you're trying to climb out of a giant, essentially waterbed. <laughs> no, she's still like very like girly in some ways when she first gets mm-hmm. uh, taken to meet like the new president of the country. They like put her in this big red dress and she just like is staring in a mirror in this limo and being like, oh, I look like a princess. But then it's also like the scene where she busts herself out and it turns out the rest of the Suicide Squad doesn't need to. She goes through, she murders like 50 guys with like guns and her bare hands and that javelin. And at one point, these like this, these sort of CGI like flowers just start erupting Mm -hmm. behind her. And when she like cuts a guy's head off with the javelin, like instead of blood spurting out of his neck, it's flowers. And it just really like takes you into this sort of, I don't know, supercharged psychotic femininity of whatever like Mm -hmm. fantasy she, she lives in, which is like pretty fun. And I think they, they managed to, Kind of do something new with the character while also not making her the center of things. I, I think Margot Robbie, among other people, kind of calculated that the character works better when she's sort of, I think she referred to as like a sort of agent of chaos when she's sort of off mm-hmm. to the side and then just kind of runs in and like screws everything up because she <laughs> doesn't understand what's because she's just walking back and forth. And I think she works really well as kind of, you know, like a very intense spice in this movie and not necessarily like the main protein. Yeah, arguably Bloodsport is the main character. And I know that James Gunn has sort of said that Ratcatcher is like the heart of the movie, which is true. Like the moment where she summons her rats is all about her bond with her late father who came up with the rat summoning technology and how rats are actually a valuable member of society. (laughs) Yeah, because even the most discarded characters have worth. Like, for example, shitty comic book characters that no one cares about. Exactly. I will say this, I I like watching the rats in this movie. I was like... They're pretty cute. Rats are pretty cute. But the one thing you guys didn't really put in the movie and that would probably throw a lot of people off is the fact that all like so many male rats have those terrible pompoco balls. And it's like, there's no way to make that look nice on screen. Yeah, I mean, there's a little because it is still like a DC movie, like, you know, King Shark wears shorts for the entire film. Where do they get his clothes from? It's not even. (laughs) Yes. I mean, I like that he's wearing this sort of like sort of dorky pattern like you know 70s swim trunks or whatever but it's still like why is a giant shark who kills people wearing pants also is it that inappropriate i don't know what a shark penis looks like but i don't i imagine i like is anyone gonna be like oh you're gonna get an nc-17 for that one i mean i don't i don't think it's out generally like i don't yeah think, i think it's you know retractable um right. we're gonna go all the way there yeah so it seems like they could have gotten away with that but uh maybe someone just decided that pants were funnier i don't know yeah, that's fair. Anyway, rat balls, take that into consideration if you try to if you try to adopt a rat out there. So they kill the starfish, which in a really kind of sad moment, because in his dying breath with his dying breath, Star was like, I was happy just floating out in space, which is what he was doing when they found him and then brought him to Earth and then experimented on him for like 30 years. It's a kind of bittersweet part of the ending, as well as the fact that the rebels managed to take over Cordomalities and instate a democratic election coming up. But the information that they have about the fact that the American government is responsible for Project Starfish ends up being sort of buried again because because Bloodsport uses it as leverage to let them go free instead of having to go back to prison and face any consequences. Right. I mean, it's 
there's a point at which I think you gain nothing from like thinking too hard about the end of a movie like this. And, and Absolutely. basically what it's going to do is kind of, you know, wave in the direction of a lot of things like American, you know, intervention in, in like South American politics and mm-hmm. um, stuff like that, which it does. And I think there is, you know, something to having a character, you know, and an actress, the, the rat catcher, Daniela Melchior, like who's Portuguese, like summons herd of rats to kind of come out of the you know, out of the streets of this country and take down the giant conquering starfish and whatever, you could probably try to do something with that. I I think it would be like of limited use, but you know, at least I think this does certainly in a more concerted way than the Marvel movies that are supposedly about like the surveillance state or whatever. I think this does at least nod pretty firmly in the direction of you know how bad like U.S. intervention (laughs) has has been. Yeah, without without sort of like you know, getting into the specifics, obviously, or, you know, necessarily confirming that any of the characters are irredeemably bad, which in in real life, if they kind of, you know, actually traded their own freedom for keeping this, you know, 30-year program that has, like, murdered thousands of people a secret, that that, that would actually be bad in real life. (laughs) But... (laughs) Bad being an understatement. Yes. I guess we should also mention the fact that I don't think we really explained what Polka Dot Man is, or we may not have explained the powers of these guys sufficiently. Really, Bloodsport, Rick Flag, and Peacemaker are kind of the same in that their power is they're pretty buff and they have guns, right? Yeah, I know there's a, there's a very funny moment at the beginning when um, yeah. Bloodsport is described, you know, as, okay, he's a mercenary, he can kill with anything, he was raised by his father to kill from the moment he was born, yeah. yada, yada. And then, then Amanda Waller says, I'm assembling this team, every member has a unique skill set. Here's Peacemaker, who's a mercenary who can kill with anything, and he was raised by his father to kill from the yeah. moment he was born. And, and Bloodsport just kind of looks at him like, that's, that's what I do. Um, yeah. You know, so... Uh, the movie does kind of nod to that and and mm-hmm. maybe even to the fact that like Bloodsport was kind of like a last minute substitution for Deadshot. Yeah. Um, but yeah, but I think it is actually like the very rare movie of this kind where it is worth like in a couple of cases, like just sitting down and talking about the characters. Um, yeah. So yeah. yeah. Like, so yeah. Polka Dot Man. Let's go. <laughs> yeah. Polka Dot Man. Really, this movie is M- MVP. I love David Desmalkian. I, I think he's he's so great in everything he does. And I only recently discovered that The Dark Knight was his first movie appearance, but is so high impact where he's that one cop that gets caught and they think briefly is a Joker and they like interrogate him to find out where Heath Ledger's gone. Anyway, in this, he's much more approachable. Polka Dot Man is just this very kind of awkward, sweet, semi-depressed guy who was experimented on by his mother who wanted her children to turn out to be superheroes and ended up contracting this interdimensional virus, which means that these just bright polka dots appear all over his body. And if he doesn't expel them twice a day, then they will eat him alive. But as we see him firing off polka dots in the movie, it's like it's like being hit with acid. They just eat up whatever they land upon. Right. And they also have, because he has these very severe kind of mommy issues, he he basically (laughs) just got, you know, he's, he's a very sort of retiring, you know, fundamentally peaceful guy, but the way he manages to unleash these things and murder people in these gruesome Mm -hmm. ways is he just pretends that they're his mother. Yeah. It's so sad when he's like, yeah, I don't really like killing people, but when I imagine that they're my mom, it's easy. (laughs) Yes. 
And so the, and the movie actually like takes on his point of view and shows you at one point a shot of the entire suicide squad as his mother at the very end, Mm -hmm. right before he takes out uh, Starro. He imagines his mother as this giant kaiju is like knocking down these buildings and stuff. It's really, uh, you know, it's very sort of over the top, a little bit crude and also very funny. Yeah. Um, and, and Ratcatcher just controls rats. That's her whole thing. Her dad, played by Taika Waititi in flashbacks, has pioneered this technology to help him, like, call rats and make them do his bidding. And she does essentially the same thing. And as we previously mentioned, King Shark, a.k.a. Nanawe, is supposedly, like, a shark god, an aquatic god, unclear. And he is just very big and strong and good at chomping. Yes. And I also really like the way that uh, Peter Capaldi, who you mentioned, plays yeah. the thinker in this, who is often kind of this, you know, just sort of forbidding super genius, but actually just plays him as very kind of like louche and weird in this. And just his like his posture in scenes is very strange. There's one point in which mm-hmm. Ratcatcher is trying to, you know, threaten him, make him come with you. And she says, you know, how would you like me to send, you know, four rats to go run up your ass? And then he responds like, my answer may not be what you expect. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You know, so it's just like a really gloriously like weird performance in the middle of this movie. Peter Capaldi obviously has lots of experience acting mm-hmm. across from like rubber tentacles um, and doing this weird <laughs> kind of stuff. But he just he has like so much fun with it in this movie that he's really enjoyable to watch. Yeah. I mean, all the performances I would say across the board are pretty good. Yeah. Including Idris Elba, who has just been announced as the new Knuckles in Sonic 2, which is like flabbergasting to me. I don't think, not that it's a bad choice, but it's just like, I would never have called that in a million years. No, he's very, he's very good at, at sort of like underplaying and kind of being like the straight man in this movie. There's a, that point when, you know, Harley interrupts their rescue for him and she mm-hmm. she offers to like, she's like, well, I could just run back side, inside and let you rescue me again. And you just hear him, you hear Bloodsport kind of go under his breath patronizing. Yeah, um, that's good. Yeah. <laughs> It's good. They should let him be funny more. I think he's quite good at that kind of almost like deadpan kind of humor. Yes. Yeah. So they save the day, but don't reveal the corruption of the U.S. government. And then we have a brief mid-credits. Okay. No, wait. There's one minute credit scene where we see a weasel waking up on the beach and then just running off. And then a sort of more end credit scene in which we see that Peacemaker has been retrieved from the rubble of Jotunheim and is actually still alive. Yes. And that's also the scene where we see that Amanda Waller, who gets hit with a golf club at one point mm-hmm. because she's like, she's actually totally totally willing to let all the people of Cordo Maltese die to protect this American secret. She gets, you know, clubbed, knocked out by her subordinates who then go over to the suicide squads and make them the hero. But then apparently Waller like gets back to running the office. And so as like kind of punishment for these functionaries, mm-hmm. she's like sent them on the shit mission to go like visit Peacemaker in the hospital. Yeah, notably the guy who goes, Steve Aggie, is actually the onset body of King Shark, even though the voice of King Shark is provided by Sylvester Stallone. Yes. Uh, yeah, I, I do think, um, you know, different filmmakers do these do these things different ways. But I think, you know, James Gunn, although he's got, you know, like all this money to play with now, he does really, be, I think because he comes from sort of kind of low-budget filmmaking background, mm-hmm. he really does believe in like having – you know, like real actors on set, even to play these totally CG roles to to, to act it. And really, like he says, not just act as stand-ins, but really actually give performances, even if you don't end up seeing them in the film. Mm -hmm. Um, And it does really make them feel like real characters. So even so you do end up like caring about King Shark and even Weasel in this movie. (laughs) 
<laughs> it's just the noises, yeah. the weasel noises. The weasel I'm not going to do them for the podcast. No, <laughs> it's probably wise. But yeah, no, yeah. they're they're quite they're quite something. I saw in an interview that James Gunn said that he based his version of the character on Bill the Cat from the Boone <laughs> County comic strips. And, yeah. and knowing that, it is exactly Bill the Cat. Those are just basically it makes perfect sense. They are just basically acts that that character is is saying. Yeah. So it seems like you're overall pretty positive. Suicide Squad, good. Well, the Suicide Squad, good. It's, it's weird. Like, I really, I kind of enjoy, I very much enjoyed, like, talking with you about it. There are parts of it that I like a lot. I, I feel like the movie itself, as a whole, like, left me pretty flat. So it's, you know, maybe it's, like, one of those sort of, like, you know, sketch comedy-based uh, movies where it's, like, the bits are more fun to repeat or think about in isolation than they are to watch as part of a whole movie. But I, I think I'm talking myself into in realizing maybe I enjoyed it more than I thought I did. You've seen it twice already, so I feel like that's already something. <laughs> yes, well, the, yeah, the first time I watched it, like, you know, on an iPad at like 11 o'clock at night on vacation. <laughs> so I felt like I had to actually that's fair. try and remember things for this. But 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 yeah, I guess I I would recommend it if you like that sort of thing. Let's put it that way. Yeah, I mean, it's very much like in the same vein as we mentioned that be- at the beginning of the podcast that James Gunn is responsible for the Guardians of the Galaxy movies. And it's very much in that same kind of vein where it's like, let's have a fun time. But in this case, it's with a little more blood and guts being thrown around. Yes. So if if someone came up to you and was like, should I watch The Suicide Squad? You would say yes, you would recommend it. I, I have people have asked me that. And I have basically, <laughs> basically said what I just said. I was like, if you like, you know, sort of, extreme funny gore and kind of tongue-in-cheek, you know, over-the-top superhero stuff, then yeah, absolutely. Especially because it's on HBO Max. You don't have to Mm -hmm. send people into theaters to either, you know, spend their money and or possibly risk their health to do so. This is a very good thing to, like, watch at home. Easily accessible. All right, cool. Yeah, I mean, so much fun talking about this movie with you. I liked it, and I'm glad that I have sort of talked you into being more positive on it as well. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for doing so, Karen. That's our show. Please subscribe to the Slate Spoiler Special podcast feed. And if you like the show, please rate and review it in the Apple Podcast Store or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have suggestions for movies or TV shows we should spoil, or if you have any other feedback you'd like to share, please send it to spoilers at slate.com. Our producer is Morgan Flannery. For Sam Adams, I'm Karen Hahn. Thank you for listening.